Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Mel Robinson from Woodlands Nursing and Care Home in Chesterfield, Derbyshire. Mel, welcome to the programme. Great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. It's fantastic having you. Now, the purpose of this podcast, Mel, is, of course, to get your take on leadership. And leadership really is being put to the test at the moment in the current climate, isn't it, with the whole COVID-19 outbreak. And leaders in so many industries are having to navigate their businesses, firms, organisations through that. So for someone working in the care sector, how has it been for you attempting to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been a huge challenge. It's been the greatest challenge I've ever known since I've worked in health and social care. Um, Obviously, um, the greatest challenge has been trying to keep people out of the home that were only allowing essential people in. Now, that in itself has not been too difficult. The uh, relatives of residents have been very understanding. But obviously, for the residents themselves, it's been a case of how do we um, enable them to communicate with their loved ones uh, okay, for a few days, it's not a problem. But here we are into week four of lockdown and, you know, the, the residents begin to wonder, well, what's happening? Wh- where is where is my my son, my daughter? Where is my, my husband? Uh, where's my wife? All that kind of stuff. So the challenge has been, how do we enable them to communicate with, with loved ones? Then, of course, it, it, it's a fear factor. In the beginning, uh, staff were... Um, just getting on with their jobs, and uh, it didn't seem to be a problem. But in recent days, we, we've had uh, several of our residents pass away. Uh, none of them been actually uh, diagnosed as COVID-19, but suspect. And it, it, as time has gone on, especially this past weekend, when we've seen several of our residents pass away, it's been very trying, not only for residents, for but for that the staff who have actually come in and really worked hard to ensure that the service keeps on um, providing uh, an excellent service. Uh, of course, the biggest problem we're having now is shortages of PPE, mm. uh, masks, face masks. And um, in the beginning, it was you don't wear face masks unless you're in the isolation unit. And now it's everybody wanting to wear face masks because, as they can see, uh, several of the residents becoming poorly, they're beginning to get frightened for their own uh, own sake. So that's a, a big problem. So all of these things and trying to keep the morale of staff um, going is, is is becoming more and more challenging as the, as time goes by. It is a huge challenge uh, maintaining that morale and uh, we often hear it said that um, it is unprecedented um, ground that we're on um, at the moment. Um, No no one's ever seen anything like this. You've said that, of course, yourself. So considering that we are very much in uncharted territory, what would you say is the biggest thing that you have learned from this whole experience? I think the biggest thing I've learned from this is the importance of having a strategy, making sure that we're planned for it. And this is something that uh, I met with a, a small group of our, our heads of department to write, what do we do in in uh, a situation where maybe the whole home is, is affected by COVID-19? What do we do if there is a shortage of PPE? What do we do if there's a shortage of staff? So it's a case of learning a new style of leadership that 
we're in uncharted waters, but how do we manage? How do we cope? How do we strategize? And it's having all these things in place so that when anything happens, we're actually got something there ready to go with it. And I think that's been the case of teamwork. That's been the most important. Teamwork's vital in, in health and social care anyway. But at this time, teamwork and identifying people's skills and allowing them to come on board and, and actually be part of the direction of uh, dealing with this very challenging situation. I think that's been the biggest lesson we've all learned, that the the importance of each of us being part of a team. We have a, a, lo, um, a Logan uh, here at, at the Woodlands. We've had it since I came back in May last year, which is one value, one vision, one team. We didn't know at that time how much that would be required, and it's coming to the forefront, certainly in these days, when uh, we're talking about everybody working together, having a clear, direct strategy of how we're going to deal with it. And, and, and that's been the biggest learning thing that we've, we've had in, 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 in all the years that I've known anyway. Mm. That word learning is crucial, isn't it? Because we have to remember that even when one enters into a leadership role as such, learning doesn't stop, does it? You're not ready-made and um, built, um, you come with all the knowledge required. I mean, it's still very much a learning process and you can't really become a good leader without that learning process, can you? No, no. Um, Before I became um, the the, um, home manager of the woodland and uh, a home up in Harrogate called the Crest, I was an MVQ assessor, level five for managers. And one of the units for that qualification was leadership. And whilst I may know all all the things that you need to know about leadership, actually this COVID crisis actually brings out a different style of leadership in you, which needs to be calm, it needs to be collective, that you are not panicking, running around the home, showing that you're, you're under great stress. You're able to walk around and shore up others that are feeling the stress, encouraging them, giving them lots of encouragement, giving them lots of assurance. So leadership is, is I think there's a new style of leadership now that we need, and it's been calm, it's been cool, and it's been um, fo- um, focused on what needs to be done. Not thinking about tomorrow, but dealing with today. And that's been the most important thing in our leadership style at the Woodlands just now. I can see where you're coming from there. I mean, leaders at the minute have to show that ability to be calm and collected. And um, you mentioned earlier as well, the importance of being able to plan for the long term. At the moment, Mm. when there is a great deal of uncertainty like there is now, it's also testing the ability of uh, business leaders to be reactive as well, isn't it? And be yeah. able to make pragmatic yeah. decisions very quickly with a little bit of thought behind yeah. them. And that's also yeah. incredibly important when that calm element comes in there again, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I think, I think that's dead right. I mean, we are so fortunate. Um, I'm going to drop a name here, a lady called Tracy who works for the uh, Derbyshire County Council, she has been absolutely marvellous. Not sat in an office, but actually getting on the phone to see how we are as leaders, 
is there anything she can do to help us? And and when we ran out of masks, she actually got in a car and went to her home and, and begged for 50 face masks because we didn't have any. And she brought it to our door and she gave it to us. And, and that's a kind of leadership that's throwing up through this COVID crisis that even people in kind of like um, the, the the officers, the the uh, commissioners of our service are actually getting out there and saying, okay, we need to support these guys on the front line. And they're actually kind of like putting their backbone into it and saying, right, let's see what we can do. Let's see how we can deliver this service. Not, not getting on the phone and asking somebody to do it, but actually getting in the car and bringing it. And that kind of leadership from you know, our um, district and, and, and civic officers has been so important. It's been so encouraging as well. That's a very interesting example there because um, I think um, it ties into um, an idea um, that um, I heard recently that uh, this crisis and times of crisis in general do tend to bring out the best in people, don't they? And we yeah. see people really yeah. stepping up to the plate and really delivering. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. Um, before I before I became the home manager, I was a Salvation Army officer, and was very much involved with the floods up in Cumbria. And um, again, you know, it was that kind of everybody working together. Whether you're a Salvationist or a Salvation Army officer, whether you're working on a tea wagon, or whether you're down in the council offices and, and managing the, the situation, or you're in the castle and you, you, you can like sorting out all that needs to be done. It's that same kind of spirit of people coming together and acknowledging that we have a situation where we need to pull together. And this has been exactly the same thing here um, in Chesterfield, that people are pulling together and, and providing what I think is a most excellent service. It certainly seems the uh, the case as well. And given this sense of unity that we have coming together, do you think that's had an effect on the levels of criticism that leaders, especially in your industry, have had to face as well in making decisions quickly in dealing with this crisis? Because quite often there is um, an element of criticism in being in a leadership role because ultimately you are there to be shot at for the decisions that you make. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I think um, some of the heart-rendering, what I've, I said right at the beginning when there was a lockdown, the decision was made by the chief, chief executive officer, uh, I think a week before it actually came out, that said, we need to lock down, and we, we followed his directives. Um, the, all the relatives agreed with, with our decision on it, but the, obviously there's a husband there, he's... he's, he's 78 years of age, his, his wife's in, and he wants to see her every day. He used to come every day and to go. And, and it was hard to say to him, I'm sorry, you can't do that. You're putting your wife at risk, you're putting our residents at risk, and you're putting yourself at risk. And that was very hard. And, you know, I'm sure he thought I must have been, you know, the monster from hell, stopping him from seeing his wife. Another lady whose husband was... Um, nursing in bed and she, she she wanted to stay with him and, and, and when we had our first suspected um person with with COVID nineteen, we actually asked her if she would leave because obviously uh, she was at risk as well. And mm. it was hard. And when the family phoned up and, and we had to explain to the family the rationale behind it, you know, they understood it. But they didn't agree with it. And, and uh, you know, they said it kindly, 
because they could feel the pain of mum. And we all felt that pain. And, and we actually felt the pain when her husband passed away a few days ago. You know, there's a few tears around the home. It's difficult when you've got to actually think of the greater good by saying to the, the one or two, I'm sorry, uh, I'm going to have to stop you from coming in. Mm. And it's an inevitability that, isn't it, um, as a leader, having yeah. to deal with conflict of sorts, be that something external yeah. or even internal conflict as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 the way I deal with it is um, I'm used to being fired at. Um, sometimes strong leadership, you're there to be fired at. But I always think of what the end result is going to be. The end result is going to be that we're looking after our residents. That's the number one factor. We've got to make sure that they are safe. I've got to think of my staff that they are safe too. I've got to think of the greater good. And yeah, whilst his bullets are being fired, it's hard. But that's what I'm there for. And that's what I'm mm. paid for as well. Exactly. And we've talked a lot about... Um some incredible work that people are doing within the health and social care sector, especially um, mm. in the present time. Um, but thinking about those for a moment, are there any examples of people, um, be they in health and social care or outside of that sector, that have maybe inspired you, Mel? I think, I think uh, I've already mentioned her name, um, and, and Fiona from Continuing Healthcare. These two people, you know, they come in to inspect our service to make sure that we're providing. But these two people have been the most excellent examples of leadership that I could ever, you know, imagine. They've been there. They've directed me. They've supported me. They've listened to me when when I've I've doubted myself at times. They've come alongside and, and given assurance. I think that kind of support from the top has been um, tremendous. But not all. Not forgetting also Midland Healthcare, who have been there. You know, I've I've had Manji and I've had Andrew, that and and the chief executive um, Phil, who has, has just phoned up to look. What is it you need? If you need anything, let us know. Or they've been there for me just to just to speak out some ideas and they've been able to, to direct us. If maybe it's not been um, a good way to go, they've been able to give us clear direction. So I think there, you know, you've got it, that you've got people in executive positions, you've got your, your local uh, senior leaders, you've got um, district level leaders from, from even the local council phone the other day and, and wanting to know how she could help. So you've got all that support. And you know, that is so important because it's so easy for staff and for management to feel that you're all alone. Um, when it first came out, I spent the first two weeks 24-7 living at home just in case they needed a calming influence if something happened. And, and, and that was so important to have the night staff and the day staff feel that I was there, the captain of the ship, being there just to support them at this difficult time. Absolutely. Leading from the front and leading um, from the top is um, hugely important at this time. And you yeah. mentioned some fantastic examples there, Mel, but also some very interesting ones as well in some of the names there. Because quite often when we think of leaders, um, we're tempted to think of celebrities, politicians, people that are very much in the public eye. But quite yeah. often there are some fantastic examples, particularly in the health and social care sector of leaders yeah. that doesn't necessarily go noticed. Um, if we consider that yeah. just for a moment, would you say that good leadership is as recognised and indeed is celebrated as much as it should be in this country? I don't think it is, to be honest with you. I think very much leadership is taken for granted. 
you are a good leader or you're not a good leader. If you're not a good leader, um, people know about it and it's, it's broadcast. If you're a good leader, I don't think there's so much celebration of that. And I hope that at the end of this COVID-19, that there is actually a recognition of good leadership. Because I, I want to identify in Derbyshire, especially with the names that I've mentioned, and the company that I work for, that that has been you know, the unsung heroes that will go on and to the next thing. Because after COVID-19, there'll be something else that we have to deal with. We don't stop. We, we continue providing the best service for our, for our service users, for our residents. So, no, I don't think we do celebrate it enough. And I think we should. I think there, being, there needs to be a time where at the end of this, we actually sit down and say, let's celebrate. This is something I do with my own staff. You know, I say, when we've achieved something, let's celebrate. Now, that might be a bottle of Coca-Cola and uh, some cream buns or, or something like that. But there needs to be celebration because it's only us working together that we can pull this thing through and be victors in it. I think you're absolutely right. And um, if we do think now about um, the future and about the end of COVID-19 uh, before we wrap things up, um, what do you imagine the next 12 months is going to hold for yourself for Woodlands? And what do you really hope to achieve in that time, Mel? In the next 12 months, I think that there needs to be time when we sit down and we evaluate what went well, what didn't go well, what kind of leadership it threw up. What were our weaknesses, but what was our strength? Um, I think the way forward for the Woodlands is actually um, having a positive, clear strategy of what we want to achieve in the next 12 months. Learning from the things that we've learned, because this COVID-19 has thrown up people's skills. It's thrown up um, skills that we didn't, no people had it's shown us leaders that we didn't think we had and it's actually looking at that and saying how can we use that to make a better service for the future for our residents for those that will come our way in the future to make the woodlands one of the best services within Derbyshire Exactly. There is going to be so much to uh, learn from this. And what I think would be fantastic, Mel, is in, at some point in the next 12 months, if we could perhaps even have you back on the programme to look at what we've said retrospectively and just see how that process yeah. is being borne out in the months to come. Yeah. Um, but for now, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure and incredibly insightful having you on the programme today. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the benefit thank of you the for listening listeners. To me. I've really enjoyed it, Mel. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. As well as scoring over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City during his career, Sir Jeff remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff, and that's coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. 
But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, had one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the colour of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. 
and it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a, a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time it maybe overly strict, but at the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I 
at that stage, I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Lee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out mm. now. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited but just had a, had a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you in too. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, in most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, 
three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a, uh, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, but then again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, um, well, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with... Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just 
luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leading show. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, That's a good they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, so many, yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back on an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I... when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant 
that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused, you're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my me- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.